the show you're about to hear discusses films, books, and TV shows in their entirety, twists, endings, and all, without fear of spoilers. So if you don't want to know who dies, who done it, or how it all ends, we strongly advise you switch off now. I'm Paul Tyler, and welcome to Spoiler, the show which reviews movies, books, and TV shows in their entirety. This week, we're watching the 1967 Paul Newman prison drama, Cool Hand Luke. And just another final warning, we will be talking about the whole of the plot. We will ruin it for you. So if you've not already seen Cool Hand Luke, go away, watch it now, then come back to us afterwards. Have they gone? Right, on with the show. We are going to get through this introduction without using the E word. You know the word. The one that gets mentioned every time someone talks about Cool Hand Luke. There were 50 of them, and they either came before or after the chicken. No one's sure. But let's try and avoid the cliché so early on. Yes, sir, Paul Newman stars as Luke, sentenced to two years in a rural prison for petty crime. Now Luke is a character that refuses to conform to authority, and more importantly, to his fellow inmates' expectations of him as they gradually accept and endear to his acts of minor dissent. Just like today when he kept coming back at me with nothing. Yeah, well, sometimes nothing can be a real cool hand. Quite unconventionally, I'm going to ask you to do something probably not many podcasts ask you to do. Press pause and take a minute or two and type Paul Newman into Google Images. It's okay, we're going to be here when you've finished cooing. Oh, hello, you're back. Thanks. That was quite something, wasn't it? Quite regularly on Spoiler, we love to explore other actors that were considered for the roles we discuss. We may well do that in this episode, but think about the pictures you've just seen. Could it be anyone else? Come to think of it, if you were a movie director in the 60s and 70s and you were casting a male lead, I wouldn't believe you if you claimed that Newman wasn't top of your list. So it's there, the eyes, the charisma, that wry smile, the easy physicality, the lean. And what a lean. Oh man, I thought I could lean, but just look at his lean. Got eyes, don't I? I might not go see something that look like that. But with all that in place, a film could still go disastrously wrong if you have a poor script and a rubbish supporting cast. Cool Hand Luke is a Rotten Tomatoes 100% film, 8.2 on IMDb, and a 4 out of 4 with our old friend Roger Reaper, who claimed that Luke was a willing martyr, a man so obsessed with the wrongness of the world that he invites death to prove himself correct. Ain't you scared of dying? Dying, boy, he can have this little life anytime he wants to. Come on! You're welcome to it, old timer! Let me know you're up there, come on! Love me, hate me, kill me, anything! Just let me know it! Was death really worthwhile to prove himself correct? Was it a fight worth fighting? And is this still a film worth watching beyond simpering over Newman's obvious star quality? Hey, we did it. No mention of the E word. And that is truly excellent. Sorry. Then I won't go to hell. Later in the show, inspired by the working relationship between Paul Newman and Stuart Rosenberg, we'll be taking a look at some other ongoing actor-director relationships. But first, joining me to mull over Cool Hand Luke and ensure that what we have here is not a failure to communicate, we are... See, my acting is coming on. I know. Our boss, Andy. <laughs> and boss, Rachel. Hello. Hello. So, Rachel, where do you stand on Paul Newman? Oh, 
as close as possible. (laughs) (laughs) I love him up. You knock him in. Oh, he's just, mm, yes. Yeah, when you said about Googling, Mm -hmm. if if I had the ability to Google in the studio, I totally would have been, you'd have lost me for the rest of the episode. (laughs) I was was writing that intro, I was writing that intro out. I did that, obviously. I I thought, Mm. oh, just let me just have a quick look and see what he brings. My word. I know. My word. Preaching to the choir here. I mean, it really is. I mean, if you didn't do it, if you, right? If you didn't do it in the introduction, we're really serious about this. You know, as we'll still be here, we'll hang around for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're fine. <laughs> you will thank us. It's yeah. no, he's he's a beautiful, beautiful man. Those eyes and that lean. You're quite right. And yeah. the smile. Yeah. And the charisma is just born to be on screen. Absolutely born to it. I and, mean, heaven, yeah. heaven knows. I've put most of my working adult life into leaning, right? <laughs> But no, not like that. I need to get back to the drawing board. Learn from the master. I know. So, well, come back to you in when we stop. <laughs> when I've calmed down. When we've stopped killing, Rachel. But um, now, Andy, Andy, like, come on now, let's get serious. <laughs> cool hand, Luke. I mean, does it stand up or, I mean, did it ever? Uh, well, my notes just start with three words, which just say, now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, as a member of this team, I, I push quite a lot to, to delve a bit further back than before 1985. And I'm, I'm always pushing. I'm trying to get us back into the 1930s. Like, yes. <laughs> but yes. we've uh, we've got we've got back as far as the, as the 50s before, and here we are in the 60s with an absolute classic. But I'm afraid in my synopsis of of why it's a classic, I am just going to have to kill about Paul Newman as well. (laughs) Uh, Genuinely, I mean, he he takes two seconds to Google him, but you need to set aside a good half hour to ogle him. It's, uh, Newman was he was a big hitter at, at this time already he'd been nominated for three Oscars by the time he, he made this he was nominated again for this and then another five times in his career which is incredible by by any rate but I mean he's not just gorgeous he's not just got the star quality he is incredibly talented as well and I think the subtlety of his performance in this is what makes it so brilliant I think it's got a great script it's got a great cast but Paul Newman is the the essential thing there there's no element of showiness about his performance at all. Uh, and especially like as it builds up, he waits in the background, the scenes, just reacting with these brilliant little smiles and these twinkles in his eye. And uh, as the film becomes more squarely focused on him, he retains that subtlety, even as he's pushed into the foreground. Uh, one thing that I, I thought about was the story that the comedian Stuart Lee told. I know we we're all big fans of Stuart Lee. Yeah. He talked about a gig he performed that took place after a sporting event had just been on. And there was a group of, I think they were rugby fans who stuck around for the gig that he was doing and they didn't get it at all and one person in particular in this group heckled him constantly shouted out and yelled at him all the way through and afterwards Stuart Lee went and told his friends I've just been I've had this awful gig and I've been heckled all the way through by this alpha male and his friend said, that wasn't the alpha male. He said, was there a member of that group who at no point heckled you, who sat in complete silence? And he said, yeah, there was actually. He said, that was the alpha male. And all those other ones who were flailing around, they were doing it because they were trying to impress the alpha male. And that's what Luke is in this film. And when he arrives, it seems like Dragline is the alpha male. But he proves that he is, by not even not even trying to take him on, he just gets forced into it and it's Dragline who ends up flailing around throwing punches at him trying to prove himself to Luke and ultimately he does and that's the, the subtlety of this film and what Paul Newman puts across he doesn't try and hog the spotlight he just naturally takes it yeah I totally agree with that so yeah, yeah I was saying I was going to say Rachel now we've cooled down I don't think I have but I'll, I'll try anyway <laughs> now, this is actually the first time I've seen this film which is pretty shocking because it's a total classic 
And I was slightly trepidatious about watching it because um, my friend Gina, who is a regular listener to the show, hello Gina. Hi, yeah. Um, <laughs> she, this is her favourite film. And oh, when I said we were doing trust. it, I was like, oh God, I hope I like it. <laughs> and I loved it. <laughs> and, um, and it was from the off, from the very beginning when he's taking the heads off the parking meters. And he sort of flops down and then the, the police come and he looks up at them and you just think, wow, <laughs> he's just got this amazing presence and he just kind of gives that lazy smile to them and and he just seems to get so much across by doing so little. He's not showy at all. And in those times, especially sort of coming out of the 50s and into the 60s and getting into sort of the actor's studio and stuff, there was quite a lot of over-the-top performances and people still doing the theatre thing because that's where it all came from. So a lot of theatre actors was doing film. But he, to me, is a quintessential film actor because you, he couldn't... I don't know if he ever did theatre, but I don't know if it would come across or not. He'd have to do a real intimate theatre gig if he did one. Yeah. Because the little bits on his... The little movements in his face, the little tweak in his eye, just tiny things... And he says so much of it. He's so clever as an actor. He's a very intelligent actor. I keep saying he is. He was a very intelligent mm-hmm. actor. And, um, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine. It's like you said at the beginning. Nobody else could touch this role. Nobody. I mean, there's a few things where we've talked about films. and go, Oh, we can maybe see that. But no, absolutely no. It has to be him yeah. or no one. It would have been OK, wouldn't it, with yeah, someone else? But it wouldn't have couldn't. been the classic. It wouldn't have been. He is Cool Hand Luke. He just totally is. The only name I could find of that was Telly Savalas. Oh, no. Mm, can't, <laughs> can't even no. begin to imagine that. No. No, <laughs> no, no I can't. Although I do, I, I do like the story about Telly Savalas where uh, Jonathan Ross tells this because someone was asking Jonathan Ross about his, his generosity. And this is something that he, tra- he tries to shoo away from. But, you know, he's not short of a couple of bob, is he? But uh, <laughs> I think he, he always likes to tell this story about when Telly Savalas was in a restaurant and he paid for all his friends' food. And he said, well, he's not really showing off. He says, because when Telly's carrying, everybody's carrying. <laughs> And I, that that stuck with me, and I like that. <laughs> I like that too. Mm, yeah. Acting's coming along there, Paul. I know, well. I know. Keep, keep I going, know, keep going. I know, this is it. This is it. Um, now, I'm uh, your your friend. Was it Gina? Gina. Hi, yes. I, uh, um, I don't think she's going to like me very much. I. It's, it's funny because being here in the studio with you two, going on about it, right? I. <laughs> I it, I'm, I'm feeling more warmth than I have done over the past week or so with this because. Through the performances, and this is not just me. I mean, I understand here, and we all know that if three of us come into a room and start saying how brilliant everything is, do we? We we all know. We're all old enough to know now. It's boring. Okay, so what I'm what I'm doing, but what I'm doing now is not. I'm not just stoking the fire for the sake of it. What I'm saying is, I understood that the performances were great, and I just felt at times that, in fact, most of the time, that this was just. It felt like a series of sketches sewn together quite badly. Um. It's, I'm not saying it's a bad film. I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. I did enjoy it. So this is it's not straightforward. It's not simple. Yeah. It's just that it didn't it didn't talk to me. And I've been so, I've, I tell you, here's the thing. I've been searching so hard for a reason why that I've come up with a load of nonsense. Right? <laughs> I, I think if we weren't doing it for spoiler, if we weren't doing that, I, yeah, I don't know. I, w- I would have watched it. I would have seen it all through, but I wouldn't have given it much of a thought after that. You know, the fact that, that then we have to, you know, we 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 come, we have to glue a show together. Um, has made me really dig deeper, but there was nothing in it to in, to inform that. To say, go and dig deeper, do this, do that. There was nothing. There was no real trigger. Of course, Paul Newman, you know. But obviously, I've made my case clear on that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a great performance, but not just performance. And it's quite quite importantly, I put in the beginning that it, you can have Paul Newman, but if you've got a terrible supporting cast, 
but he hasn't got a terrible supporting yeah. cast. I know, see, look, Rachel, look in there. You're about to, oh no. No, no, but there isn't, there isn't a terrible supporting cast. It's a brilliant supporting cast. Obviously, George Kennedy, uh, Oscar nominated, won the Oscar. You were about to yeah. say, won yeah. the Oscar for this. And uh, of course, people like Harry Dean Stanton as well. Yeah. Uh, who unfortunately recently passed away. But he's, he, but Harry, actually, I mean, there's, there's Harry Dean Stanton. Let's just have a side note here because he's one of those actors where when I saw him, I thought, oh, he, he's been in, oh, you know, all of those things. And then you sort of, you know, you, you think, everything mm. he's been in everything yeah. Alien Twin Peaks Kelly's Heroes Wild at Heart Godfather Part 2 everything he's yeah. been in everything and the subtlety of that you know the subtlety of, of, of him as an actor uh, should, should not go unknown and and when we talk about faces we talk about a naturally naturally easy on the eye man like Paul Newman um, Harry Dean Stanton has got one of those faces just full of character oh he's consumable isn't he yeah, he's great we love Harry Dean Stanton <laughs> yeah. credited as Dean Stanton in this film I oh. noticed at the end oh yeah, which was like, oh, okay. What I love about him as well is that he, he was willing to take parts, however big or small they were. He's been the lead in some. He's had like barely seconds in other ones. Uh, to to me, he's like kind of the the alpha male of, of film history. He just he just takes takes what he can, and just sits back and and does his stuff. Mm. But yeah. it would it would appear to me then that like uh, a warm beer is better than no beer. <laughs> But a few seconds of Harry Dean Stanton on yeah. screen yeah. is better than no Harry Dean yeah. Stanton on screen. Am I right? Am I <laughs> That's right? Absolutely right. So it's not what I'm saying is it's not straightforward, and it's okay. not just me wanting to endear to your friend Gina or any other <laughs> listeners that obviously think this. And this is, I think, I think, I'm, don't get me wrong, I really think I'm in the mi- minority here, and I, I kind of, I, we've been here before. Where I've said, look, I, this is not for me. I understand why, but it just didn't. Okay. Gel. So it's not the actors. No. So is it the script? Was it the dialogue? Quite possibly. It, okay. it sounds more like it's the structure. And structure, yeah. I was so just it's about the, to say it's the, the fact structure. that it's it's episodic. Yeah. Yeah. They do they do build to something, but it's mm. you do watch them as little sketches, I suppose, uh, build into a whole. If you want it more like something you can lose yourself in a long flow, it could be a bit jarring as you you hop from oh right now he's eating some eggs now he's running away now he's I see yeah it is that episodic thing it's the way it's stitched together that is there but also the and we're going to get onto this I don't want to get to the ending too soon but the point of the whole thing I mean let's talk about conformity I suppose I mean my my theme of this is is conformity I don't you know for me it's about Paul Newman rallying against the man and yeah. and, and conformity and I don't see here we go here we go again it's my understanding that I'm not the brightest spark when I'm perhaps watching it but there was a talk of him being uh, uh, used to be in the army it obviously affected him and maybe that didn't trigger enough enough to me you know as, as if like yeah, okay there's there's much much more of a backstory that that, that, that needs uh, examining or, or even considering when you consider his behaviour it's, it's funny there, there's some other peculiar things when you talk about the the parking meters being gone off mm. I think well, well that's neither in or there and <laughs> I think about a two year sentence I just think well two year sentence just get in there get your head down and get out again wouldn't you but no there's, there's there, there are subtleties here that I've not got what are they? I think that is the thing <laughs> is that it is it's not telling you everything you want to know it's, and it's not going to because he is an enigma there is something about him. You, you can't know everything. You get a little snippet when his mum comes to visit mm. and you get a little bit more about his childhood, but not a lot. Um, you don't really know what happened to him in, in the army, but that's kind of part of him. That's part of the mystique and, the, and everything else. You don't know when he's going to crack, what could make him crack. You're just not sure what he's going to do next. And that, make, to me, makes it more interesting because I, I can't judge him. I can't say, oh, well, he had such a terrible time and he did this, so clearly he's traumatised, so that means that he'll probably behave like this. But I don't know. 
I don't know anything about him really, and nor do they, which makes him more interesting to me. But, I know, I know. I hear what you're saying. He's a multi-layered character, and this is not me being, uh, you know, dragged off the fence no, by no, you no. on this one. Uh, it's true, and I think I knew that. Do you want a bit more exposition, a bit more depth? I said, do you know what? I, I don't want to say yes. <laughs> because I think that makes me sound. Um, no, it doesn't. As, no, no, as, no. As, as teenagers would now say, and this is a lesson for us all: basic. Basic. Yeah. I think that makes okay. me sound basic, right? If I that's say that. Harsh. It but actually, harsh. I know you. You're right. I think I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's fair enough. It is unusually sort of bereft of that kind of thing. You hear just the top of things, but I think that's something that happens. Maybe um, this is me totally just going off on one, but <laughs> maybe in a prison situation, you don't give away too much mm. of who you are because yeah. then you expose your vulnerability and you, mm. you allow people then to hurt you. If you let out who you are, they're going to hurt you. So you've got to keep just very shallow bits of knowledge going on. You know, just a little bit of shallow information, just enough to give you that little bit of an enigma. And all the characters like that. We don't find out much about Dragline either and why he is the way he is and why he calls Lucille Lucille and that kind of thing. But we get little snippets of what they might be like and it's up to you to fill the blanks in. I don't know. I, I really enjoy coming up with backstories of people and not being told what they are and telling and me being told that I'm wrong. But how, <laughs> many, how many times, how many times when we sat in this room have I said I like the same thing and not being prompted by you in the first place? Yeah. I'm... I'm ridiculous. I understand this. I do understand. I do understand this. But there's just there is this thing that's just not gelling with me and this yeah. this film, which is a shame because I wanted to like it more yeah. than I did. Did you want more of a a kind of a moral centre to it? Because it's it's quite vague on on the morals, isn't it? I mean, if you look yeah. at Don Pierce, who wrote the novel and carried the screenplay, his life sounds like the basis for a, an incredible film itself. I mean, I've written down just the edited highlights there. He lied about his age age to join the armed forces, but he hated the what he saw as the arbitrary rules, so he went AWOL. Then he turned himself in, spent time in the stockade. Then he became a counterfeiter and went to prison in Marseille for passing fake American dollars. <laughs> he escaped from prison, got to the Italian border, he crossed over, but the French police had his seaman's papers, so he forged new ones... <laughs> got on a boat to Canada and started a career as a safe cracker. <laughs> and he ended up serving two years on a Florida chain gang for burglary, which is where he got the material for this from. Now, I mean, that sounds... T- I would watch that film. Oh, God, so right. Absolutely. <laughs> but looking at, looking at that as a background... It makes you wonder what what moral angle he was he was yeah. coming at it from. But does there have to be? I think this is the thing about Cool Hand Luke is that, especially because it's Paul Newman, you kind of want him to be the good guy, you know, or yeah. or, or incredibly bad, one or the other. Yeah. But he's neither. He's kind of in the yeah. middle there, and a lot of us are. Yeah. And I, we're so desperate to put people in and to make them conform and put them, you are a prisoner, ergo, you are this. And in order to escape, you must show that you are good. It's not like Shawshank Redemption where, you know, Andy Dufresne's in there and you kind of want him to get out because you know he's a good guy. It's not like that. It doesn't give you such clear answers. It, it, yeah. it expects you to kind of work out, do I, do I want him to get out? If he gets out, do I want him to stay out? Or, you know, it, it makes you question. It is a really challenging film, much more challenging than it seems. Paul, do you think that the prison guards were too clear-cut in their sort of baddiness. <laughs> baddiness. <laughs> would you have wanted a bit more complexity and a bit more grey area in them? Because they are they are portrayed as like a, very... A wall of silence, aren't they? A yeah. wall of force, a wall of, uh, of authority. I don't quite enjoy the prison guards. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I particularly like the, 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 the mirrored 
the man with no eyes, the mirrored sunglasses dude. Mm. I, you know, I, 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 I thought it was quite good. I mean, this, are you about to tell the story about him? No, no. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say that he, he stayed in character between scenes. You know, this is me looking up stuff on IMDb trivia, right? <laughs> um, and he was sitting in his chair, not talking to anyone in between takes, just to keep just to keep it up. Uh, but also, also the fact that he has very little dialogue. In fact, no, there's no dialogue. No dialogue Anyways, at all. It was all stripped out because his voice didn't match his character. Obviously, he had that <laughs> look. He had the look. We could just imagine when he spoke, he would go like, hello. <laughs> but then Strother Martin, who plays the captain, he oh. kind of does talk oh, like that. Yeah. Yeah. He has this strange high-pitched soft tone and it makes it so much more effective I've seen those kind of characters played as these hulking great intimidating guys loads of times but he plays it so strangely he's almost like a sort of haunting ghost-like figure Mm. and it makes it all the more intimidating he came across as quite a meek man but just obviously with all his you know his his bully guards around yeah Mm. I saw he had a bit of sort of mania in him because when he hits Luke and he falls and it's almost against his will he's like he does it quite rageously and then he goes almost like see what you made me do you know like you bought something out of me that I don't like that was quite interesting see he's quite complex but so I love doing this. I love I love sitting in a cafe and watching people and giving them backstories. And so I loved watching this film and giving them more backstories in my head while I was watching it and going, oh, maybe he's like that because of this. And I just, I love the complexity of people. I, I, I do get it though. I feel like I'm listening to Andy trying to like some like it hot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you sort of can't get it on. You really want to. And that's really, no, really nice that you want to. I've given up by now. Well, this is it. I know you've totally given up on some like it hot. You tried it and you've done it to death. But I, I sort of really want to be able to give this back to you and, and sort of have a little epiphany where you go oh right I'll watch it again but I know that's not going to happen it's very unlikely I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean the, 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 I, I suppose you come uh, this is it's the first time I sat th- through the whole of it and again it is one of these things you've seen on clip shows perhaps of Paul Newman eating some eggs or uh, the lady washing the car and so you know these infamous and they are infamous scenes uh, are part of this film and then they, they you know so you come with some baggage and I wasn't be able to, I wasn't able to push that aside I think mm. I mean, I reckon, you know, this is funny. I mean, I'm talking about this like, you know, like this is just, I think the, 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 the challenge for me of coming into this room and trying to be, and trying to focus questions on things like this. And I'm just sat there thinking, well, this left me kind of a bit nothing, a bit, bit blank pagey, really. cold. <laughs> which is unusual, you know. Yeah, yeah, it's quite, quite unusual. Um, I know I sit on the fence a lot, but I've still got, I can still find the good things to say about things, the bad things to say about things. And this was just like... Then I was taking the dog for a walk today and I thought, hey, do you know what, Paul? You're thinking too hard about this. It's really not worth it. <laughs> well, you shouldn't have to. This is the thing. A film shouldn't, exactly. you know, get you to a point where you're going, well, I have to force myself to like it or I should try and find some merit. Either you do or you don't. You know, I don't think reading around it as much as you can is going to help you to find that. It's either mm. going to touch or it isn't, and it didn't. Even with Paul Newman, in, I mean, if he can't do it, then I know, I know, nobody exactly. can. Well, the egg eating so. scene was a lot of fun, wasn't it? It was. I, I did laugh. I did laugh at that. So this is, maybe you should just look at it as as your little sketches and go right. How did this sketch work yeah. for you, and how did this one work for you? So the egg scene. How did that work for you? Did you enjoy it? Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, it made me, I think I, I think I think I was, I was genuinely eating at the time as well. Oh no. Did it make I you feel sick? This might, this might have been a tea break. I was I was on. I think I was eating pasta. Pasta comes up a lot. In this case, it didn't. But, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. There was. It's a kind of. I managed to push my way through it, but still, it was hard work. Mm. And again, because I've only seen clips of that before, you know, actually putting yourself through it, it was like, like an ordeal to watch it, wasn't mm. it? Yeah, absolutely. A brilliant, a brilliant ordeal, completely, you know, well acted, of course it was. Yes. 
Yeah, I love the dis- distended stomach and you go, oh, you really <laughs> felt it and it's just yeah. pushing it and you're like, oh, God. Have you ever seen footage of people attempting this for real? No. I think uh, Jack asked it and people yeah. were vomiting after like, oh, but I, I was under the impression that it's that it's impossible, but it's not. Oh. The record holder is a lady called Sonia Thomas, <laughs> who's actually a very thin lady, and she ate 65 hard-boiled eggs in 6 minutes and 40 seconds. What? She's known as the Black Widow because she <laughs> defeats all these hulking great men. Oh, and the, the, the quote that was on, on the website I looked her up on said, uh, well, the size of her stomach is only slightly larger than normal. A skinny build is perhaps her biggest advantage, allowing her stomach to expand more readily since it's not surrounded by the ring of fat common in other heavy eaters. Isn't that disgusting? That is really gross. <laughs> wow. Wow. He did 50 in an hour. She did 65 in six. Six minutes? Uh, 65 in six minutes and 40 seconds, yeah. Wow. Wow, I wouldn't want to go anywhere near her after that. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so enough of trying to persuade me about this. Come on, um, uh, uh, what did you, what did you, what did you love about it? What about the direction? What, you know, come on, <laughs> ask, 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 ask a question, Paul, Andy. <laughs> um, the, it's not a especially flashily directed film. It, it doesn't have to be. It's actually the only Stuart Rosenberg film I've seen. I think it's the only one that's really considered a, a major classic by him. And for me, the, the direction is it. It looks nice, and it's but. It, it's, it's not incredibly like amazingly directed. I don't think. I think the the script and the performances carry it more. I mean, obviously there are those those scenes like the egg eating scene, very well directed. But I also wonder if it's like that's in the editing as well that that makes it exciting to watch a man eat fifty eggs. It could have been boring, couldn't it? And, uh, <laughs> but yeah. I, it didn't. In fact, I, I realised I've, I've loved this film for years, but I only realised coming to this that I, I didn't know who directed it. And uh, it's never even occurred to me to look that up. And it's usually one of the first things I go to. So obviously I, I came away from it so with a head so full of Paul Newman mm-hmm. that uh, he just overwhelmed the, the direction side for me. Yeah, I do think the performances are the key. Yeah. And the music, obviously. <laughs> uh, we're going there now, are we? <laughs> I'm just going to pop that in there. Um, and, but there was an awful lot of Christian um, imagery yes. and iconography, which was a bit... Heavy handed, yeah. That's um, what I was like, really, there. really, are you going to go that way? What, what you're trying to say with this is like after the egg eating scene, he was very clearly left in a crucifixion, um, yeah. kind of state, and then double, and then, like, doubled up at the end when you get yeah. the crossroads and then the picture yeah. taped together. And yeah. the way that, that that's been ripped up so yeah. it forms like a crucifix yeah. rather than the cross across the middle, exactly. It, there's you would not rip it up like that, no, exactly. It's, no, it's, <laughs> it's yeah, that side, I'm not so no, I mean, and there's bits I try to sort of figure out why i mean he's number 37 his prisoner number which um luke 37 in the bible is for with god nothing shall be impossible <sighs> so there is nice, a kind of yeah. so there's little things that i kind of like i like little things like that but i don't want to be battered around the head with it but there was that sort of forsaken by god in his hour of need at the end in yeah, the church to be honest, and he I called to god and nothing happened and i'm like is this some kind of christian allegory or is it that was something that didn't sit very easily with yeah. me at all i was like just leave that bit out he's he's not the savior of anything and it's not really a Christian parable of any kind, so let's just not bother with that. Um, there was some nice cinematography. There was, um, I'd say, some good score. But I do think it is, it's a character piece. I think you could very possibly do this on stage quite quite well, yeah. and, and it would work. Um, even, the, even the tar... The tarring scene, which I really love. That's great. I yeah. love the tarring scene. Please tell me you like the tarring scene. 
I'll, yeah, I did like the time. Oh. But they all tell me, oh, you know, you know me, and I love a bit of trivia. They actually tarred a mile of road. They actually when did they, it when they when they did. Wow. That. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah, and actually, as well, to 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 bring back that, I was looking, I was looking for some negative reviews of Cool Hand Luke. You try and find them. You can't. You can't. Um, and some of the the only non five star reviews. Are, oh, we find someone here with you know sort of a dissenting voice, someone who can um, maybe tell me what I'm really thinking because heaven knows I don't know. Um, were of the short run they had in the West End oh, really? in 2011 there oh, was wow. a stage play of this oh, yeah yeah okay. but uh, you know, in 2011 it, so yes. recent yeah 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 and okay. uh, but it, it didn't didn't really well you haven't got go. Newman have you exactly. this is the thing okay well still to come we're going to talk uh, obviously about the ending of Cool Hand Luke and of course Rachel's going to blab on about the music <laughs> but Cool Hand Luke but Cool Hand Luke's director Stuart Rosenberg was reunited with Paul Newman several more times over the following decade to arguably diminishing returns Rachel has been taking a look at this and some other enduring actor-director relationships Stuart Rosenberg director of Cool Hand Luke is always posited as being the director who could bring out the best in Paul Newman and yet the three subsequent films they collaborated in didn't come anywhere near the classic status of Cool Hand. Did making one classic film together really warrant the continuation of the partnership and this honour of being Newman's best director? It started me thinking about other directors who stick rigidly with a fairly exclusive set of actors and why they would do that in an industry stuffed full of talent and, OK, some not-so-talented performers. I suppose one of the reasons, and probably the most prevalent, is simply to do with getting along with each other and the confidence and stability that can bring to a set. Making a film is a stressful, intense process, and the last thing a director needs is an unknown wildcard actor going AWOL, not taking direction or generally being uncooperative. Surround yourself with people you trust, and that's one stress immediately out of the way. Wes Anderson obviously feels very comfortable with Bill Murray and Owen Wilson, as well as many other actors who regularly appear in his films. When someone new shows up, I always feel like one of the stalwarts must have approached Wes and said, I have a friend, he'd be great in this. I just can't see anyone auditioning in the usual way for Anderson. The familial feel of the regular group could be massively undermined if an actor is hired through acting ability alone. Surely an absolute must is that they also fit in with the family, so a word-of-mouth recommendation would seem like a safe bet. Mike Lee has a similar penchant for using the same ensemble over and over. Some of the actors come and go, but there's a core few who appear almost every time. For example, Timothy Spall and Jim Broadbent. For Lee's films, the trust inherent in a familiar group is even more important than usual, as his way of filmmaking involves improvisation and workshopping, which demands a lot of trust and understanding between cast members. As a director, if you can fling some ideas at a cast and say, see what you can make of that, and know that they'll do something interesting, that's half your job done. Sometimes collaborations seem born of some kind of loving, almost an infatuation between director and actor. Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper have, so far, appeared in three David O. Russell films together, including the brilliant Silver Linings playbook. How did you lose your job? By having sex with everybody in the office. Everybody? I was very depressed after Tommy died. It was a lot of people. We don't have to talk about it. Thanks. How many were there? Eleven. Wow. Lawrence once said that she would always work with O. Russell, as long as he was making movies, and went on somewhat gushingly by saying, I love him so much that sometimes I can't talk about him without tearing up. I understand every look, every eyeball move, every word he says or doesn't say. We were made for each other. Intense. On occasion, a collaboration can appear to be about the director finding an alter ego in an actor, and almost living vicariously through them. 
The partnership between Tim Burton and Johnny Depp has often been interpreted this way. Both are quirky, somewhat dark, and have worked together so often it's odd when one works without the other. Johnny Depp himself confirmed that Edward Scissorhands was about Burton's inability to communicate as a teenager, and so he was essentially being Burton. Interestingly, Burton himself denies this. For him, I suppose it's possible that he's just found a kindred spirit who, thankfully, can act and looks good in front of a camera. However, the Depp-Burton partnership is, for me, a prime example of collaborations going stale. The dark, quirky early films were original and interesting in the 90s and early 2000s. But as time has gone on, we've become too accustomed to this type of film, directed this way, starring that person. I fear the shelf life of this particular pairing could be coming to an end. I often wondered if Richard Linklater and Ethan Hawke had a similar dynamic with this idea of an alter ego. Could Hawke have been Linklater in film form? However, if you ever read or listen to interviews with either of them, it's clear that there is quite simply a very firm friendship between them. They challenge each other and genuinely enjoy working together. So why shouldn't they do that as much as possible, especially when they make such wonderful films? A very fruitful collaboration between Neil Blomkamp and Shalto Copley, which started with a short film in 2005 but really ramped up in 2009 with a somewhat disturbing District 9, could simply be the result of a bit of kindness at the beginning of their relationship. The pair met when a generous Shalto helped out a young Blomkamp by letting him use the computers at his production company when he was starting out. Whether Blomkamp meant to repay Shalto by giving him a cracking lead role in District 9, or if it was pure coincidence, I think we can agree that sometimes it pays to be kind. Being related or married to a director can be a helpful way to get into more films. Blake Edwards directed his wife Julie Andrews nine times, including an Oscar-nominated performance of Victor Victoria. Edwards once famously said that he found Julie very easy to work with, even more so than people he wasn't married to. Ron Howard has cast his brother Clint in nearly all of his films, albeit in small, often uncredited roles, and finds nearly as many parts for his dad Rance as well. Ron is definitely happy to have family members around on set to keep him company, and I wonder if his experiences working on the set of Happy Days as a teenager has meant he works better with familiar faces around. Hector Elizondo has almost made a career out of being in Gary Marshall films. He's there in Pretty Woman, Runaway Bride and The Princess Diaries, among many others. The reason for this particular ongoing collaboration? Luck. Or rather, the superstitious belief in it. Gary Marshall considered Elizondo to be his good luck charm, so always asked him to be in his films. In fact, Hector appears so often in Marshall's films that one of his credits read, as usual, Hector Elizondo. So collaborations can be highly successful, often essential to the process, but sometimes safe and stale. For me, I think it's all about balance and ensuring that the casting is always in service to the film and not necessarily to the director. Sometimes it might just be worth throwing caution to the wind, branching out and trying someone different, just in case they can bring something completely new and exciting that would never have been discovered if the director and their familiar cast had stayed safe in their filmic bubble. Go on, what's the worst that could happen? Then I'll try something new. So thanks for that, Rachel. And uh, it's a great feature on collaborations. Far, far be it for me to stray away from the topic. <laughs> Heaven knows I want to. <laughs> um, but I was thinking, when, uh, when, when I first knew you were going on there, I was thinking about the relationship of, of Anton Corbian. Or is it Corbian, you would say? Corbin. Anton Corbin, I think, is, 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 is the, he's the Dutch photographer, film director. He's worked with U2, Nirvana, Brian Adams. But most famously, Depeche Mode. I mean, really since uh, 1990 onwards. Uh, and still producing their tour concepts and visuals. And 
I, as much as I love them and I love their visuals, I do sometimes think, oh, come on, just do a different tour, do a different stage direction, do do something, do something else rather than just every three or four years troll out the same thing. You can get, you can stagnate. And obviously this has happened with uh, a lot of actors and directors. Sometimes also with them, with score composers and directors, Spielberg nearly always uses John Williams. I love John Williams, but I would really like to know what a different composer would do for Spielberg stuff. It'd be really interesting. Just yeah. take a risk. Going to work with Stormzy. <laughs> no, well, yes, actually. Yeah. Work with I know. Stormzy. Do you know, do you know what? I threw that out quite flippantly. But actually, yeah, as said, yes. Yeah, as I said it, yeah. yeah exactly. You never know. So, hey, Rachel, talk about music. Oh, how does she horn that in there slightly? Oh, this is one thing I hope you do like about Cool Hand Luke is the, is the music which um, is kind of iconic. Um, Lalo, Lalo, Schifrin, Skifrin, <laughs> I don't know how to say his name, I've never heard it spoken. But he is a jazz musician, which is always going to play well with me. <laughs> and um, he's also done a lot of iconic stuff, the Mission Impossible theme, um, the soundtrack to Bullet, Where Eagles Dare, loads of things. Um, you think you don't know his music, and then you put something on YouTube where you put Lalo Schifrin, best stuff and every single thing that go oh was that him? oh was that him he's been sampled to death porter said abused him in sour times um the danube incident um they put them sampled the beginning of that for sour times and it's brilliant but he's just fabulous the way he messes around with time signatures on for the musos out there it's um it's really unusual for score composers to mess about with time signatures but he totally does that cool hand luke theme um, which has been in my head since I watched it, is just, it seems at odds with the actual story, but there's a nice little sinister twinge, a little minor twinge at the end, which makes you go, ooh, sinister. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas um, it's leading you like, dum, da, da, dum, nice and simple. Like you say, it's this simplicity, but there's a complex thing going underneath that little melody. Ding, 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 simple, but underneath, ding, 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 ding intricacy underneath so that that under layer of there's intricate things going on underneath a very simple seeming thing on the top and then right at the end it's oh doesn't it sound all lovely and pretty but oh dear there's something very sinister happening at the end and that's all in just one theme and i just i think it's an iconic piece of music and i think it's truly beautiful so beautiful in fact that bob fossey um choreographed a dance to it for the bob hope special in 1968 it was so well known at that point and I, I, it has stood the test of time for me, like most of Lalo Schifrin's work. He's still alive and he's still playing, which is fantastic because he's in his, in his 80s now. But yeah, that made a difference to me. I mean, the bit when they're doing the tarring of the road, if you play that to an American, it's eyewitness news um, theme. And so that's what they knew it for. But um, that excitement and that sort of almost sound like a Western, that there was some great stuff, really nice um, musical interludes in there, which really sort of drew the drew the story along for me. I could have just sat there with my eyes shut, to be honest, and enjoyed it. <laughs> what, not look upon even? I might have just had a little <laughs> sneak peek. <laughs> to your fingers. So, conformity. This, yeah, this is this is st- still <laughs> sticking. Back to conformity. It's yeah, well, it's sticking around me. It's sticking around me like a bad smell. <laughs> <laughs> it's the eggs. Did you? <laughs> So, Andy, I mean, the first time you watched it, I mean, there's a point in the film where Luke appears to be broken by the bosses. And he's running around for them, fetching water, fetching fetching their guns for them and all that kind of thing. And just before, obviously, he steals a truck and goes away. But did you believe at that point? Had they done enough? I suppose what I'm doing is backing up the truck here. Beep, beep, beep. (laughs) To say, did you believe they'd done enough to break him in the first place? 
Well, this is this is why I like that we don't have more of that exposition beforehand and we don't know more about him because I really didn't have a clue. And because we know so little about him, we only know what we got from the film, I wasn't sure if they'd, they'd broken him or not at that point. And he admits later on that they, they do break him momentarily and then he comes back from it, doesn't he? I think if we'd had more story about who he was beforehand, we'd have these expectations and we'd be one step ahead of that. Uh, and I like that he admits it as well because he could easily have brushed over that. And that is, uh, I always think that one of the biggest weaknesses you can have is not being able to accept your own weaknesses. And so it's really crucial that he admits that to Dragline when he says, we all thought you'd broken him because they idolised him on that. And he says, they did break me. Of course, who could who could stand up to that? But he's come back from it. So it shows that you, you can be broken and you can bounce back. And obviously, in the end, he, he can't bounce back. He, they uh, they shoot him, but they, they can't break what he's left them with. And he, he, he brings about a change in that microcosm of society that is, is more than, than just his life but did he did he check this is is the rub did he change that microcosm of society because ultimately the, the the way he behaved in there and the way the way the way he carried on the way he went it resulted in his premature death the man still won although one of them did get shot in the eye did he win um what did he win there you go what did he win them for me for me why what i was left with sorry andy i'm asking you a question interrupt <laughs> for, for me what he what this film left me with was that don't bother to stick it to the man. And as we know, School of Rock is my favourite film, right? <laughs> which tells you to stick it to the man. Now, if I watch School of Rock and you go, stick it to the man, yeah, right, okay, I'm going to carry on day in, day out trying to do my best to stick it to the man, right? And then I watch Call and Luke and you find out, no, the man always wins, which may well be the truth. <laughs> and that's probably what I don't like about this. There we go. That's why I've come out. I've said it. But the the last the last thing we see is is Dragline talking with the rest of the men about the legend that is now Luke. He's it's a dead legend though. He's isn't because it? he is. But let's take let's take a different example. So stand up comedian Lenny Bruce broke down huge barriers by talking about risky social issues on stage that the man reacted against. And they constantly put him on trial for obscenity, broke him down until he killed himself because he was afraid of going to jail. But in that playing out, it opened up the doors. The, those doors were kicked wide open. Stand-up comedians flooded through it. And that, that is, it's that kind of story. And even though we don't see the aftermath of, of what Luke has bought, we don't need to see that. We see that he's, he's left them this story. He's, he's going to be talked about by Dragline. It's going to be passed on to those prisoners. When Dragline goes out of the jail, they're going to pass on to the next ones. They're going to pass on to the next ones. And it brings about this ideal to live up to, that the, the prisoners are then, they're not going to let the guards push them around. And they won't follow his example exactly. They won't follow the same story and all be killed at the end. But it, it, it stops them just towing the line, which is what... Dragline suggests they do at the beginning. Uh, when he arrives, he says, you've got to learn the rules and you've just got to stick by the rules. And in the end, they say, if they're going to put you in the box and you don't deserve to be in the box, you react against that. And if enough people do that, one man can't necessarily make a difference on his own to his situation. But if, it, if he inspires enough people, then they can in the future. Mm -hmm. And that's how change is brought about. And that, to me, is the message of the film. No, I totally, totally get that. And the fact that I think a very crucial thing was when he was in the back of a car and they were taking him away and they admitted they were going to just drive the long way, so he's going to die. And he put his head back and he looked and he smiled. He smiled. And that's a really important thing. This was his decision. He could have just stayed there and not tried to escape again. But he decided to escape again 
He knew what was going to happen because they said, if you escape again, we will kill you. But he he got shot and so it's happening in his own terms. It's like, I know you're going to kill me and I'm going to die anyway. You know, we don't know what's happened to him. But when he, we first meet him, he's a drunk and he's taking the heads off of parking meters. He's not happy in his life. This is not a happy chappy. He's never been married. He hasn't, he hasn't got somebody waiting for him, you know, outside. His mother's died. You know, he hasn't got an awful lot to live for. He's, he escaped and did that photograph and stuff. He's always going to be looking for something. And so there's a little bit of me that thinks he's okay with the thought of dying, actually. But I'm going to die in the way I want to go. And I'm going to leave a legacy and I'm going to leave a story and I'm going to make sure that I smile and he sees me so that he can go out there and say he was smiling at old Luke's smile. And that's a really crucial part of it is that he was smiling at the end. Don't worry, kids, they haven't beaten me. This is what I want. And um, it's funny that you're saying about you know, the story's going to spread. And Luke Jackson was a real person. That author, the, the author of the story, when he was on The Chain Gang, he heard about somebody called Luke Jackson who ate 50 eggs and was a, an amazing poker player. He was a real person. That real person who did all those things became a character in one of the most classic films of all time. And that story has spread. So actually, if that happened to him, that has spread to millions and talked about nonconformity. So he has one, you know. So I see it as a more hopeful story than that. And crucially, we get, I think we get it preempted in miniature in the, the fight with Dragline mm. uh, near the beginning where he keeps punching him and he keeps getting up and he says, you're going to have to kill me. Yeah. And eventually Dragline walks away. So he's broken through that first barrier of power. And then we then see it writ large across the whole system. Yeah. Yeah, it's very clever. So... What do you think, Terry? <laughs> <laughs> the, the silence is me. The silence is me sat here thinking because I know you're probably right, but I don't want to admit it. <laughs> well, while you mull it over, can we just briefly talk about the car washing scene as well? Mm. Uh, I think we'd be remiss to, uh, yeah, to leave that out, particularly in the current climate with mm. the, the crumble and the patriarchy and everything. How did this scene make you feel? I think I was more disturbed when I read about um, the actress afterwards and the fact that she didn't actually realise that it was going to be so heavily sexualised until she saw it in film. Um, She was just told to wash the car and I think she must have realised there was an element of titillation but obviously the way that things are edited, put together, directed, she honestly didn't know that it was going to be quite so explicitly and overtly sexual. That to me is a violation because it's like she should have been at least aware of what she was doing. Um, So actually the scene in itself didn't bother me. Had I thought that the actress was completely and utterly okay with what she was doing and was knowing full well what was happening, she didn't do it in front of the actors. It was in front um, shot separately, so it wasn't done in front of them. Um, It was done in front of the director and one other person, I think. So it wasn't like it was something that she could necessarily feel uncomfortable about. And besides which, she didn't think she was being sexual. She thought she was just washing a car. And he was probably saying, I'll just lean over there and just lean over here, which to me just, it made me feel really uneasy. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I'm sort of glad that I watched it and then found out because I think if I'd, I'm sort of watching it in retrospect now in my head and going, oh God, that makes me feel really weird. So when you first watched it, did you did you feel it was over-sexualised at all or did you... Well, I thought... I thought she was using her power as a woman to titillate. I thought she was going, ha ha, you can't get me. So in a way, I was kind of like, oh, look at her, she's so cheeky. And almost finding a little bit of humour in it because she was knowingly doing that. But even the actress wasn't knowingly doing that. So that... No, it didn't, yeah. didn't sit well with me at all I when I found out. I think it's the uh, the difference between the, the film and the, the actual production, isn't yeah. it? And you see that they're probably saying one thing on the film, but 
the actual practice mm. of, of making it, they did some some not very uh, ethical yeah. things. No, it wasn't ethical at all. So what we're calling for is an outright ban on Cornwall Hand Luke, right? <laughs> <laughs> Afraid not, Paul. <laughs> nice little happy ending to that, though. Joy Harmon, who played her, she uh, stopped acting and she became a successful baker. Oh, cool. <laughs> Which I really liked. <laughs> yeah, so as well as this, I mean, this is this is another way I'm really going to drive you two net forward now to, uh, yeah, we're going for this, an out and out, outright ban <laughs> when we when we talk about this heated subject that you, I knew you two were going to get your teeth into. Uh, what do you think about the treatment of, uh, of animals or maybe even the perceived treatment of animals uh, during this film? So uh, maybe dogs getting caught up in, uh, in, in the wire and things like that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's an uncomfortable watch, isn't it? Very. Very, I must admit, I was extremely worried about the dog, um, the barbed wire, wasn't it, when he was trying to get underneath, yeah. and um, that was that was extremely worrying to me. And then the dog that was all floppy, <laughs> I was like, <laughs> they drugged him, or is he naturally doing that, or is it actually a dead dog? Um, so I always worry, especially in that era, because mm-hmm. um, I know um, little known fact, but um, James Stewart and Doris Day um, were instrumental in starting up the American Humane Association to make sure that animals were treated kindly on film sets. So that should have been in place and should things should have been monitored. And so there's a little bit of me going, they must have been OK, but it doesn't look OK. Um, and I do have issues with the way that animals are used in films, especially in that era. Apocalypse Now is a very good example mm. of how an animal is treated, in fact, killed. And so there are bits where I get extremely worried and I don't think there's any excuse for doing anything like that there was no real reason to show the dog getting caught like that you could have edited it very carefully and very cleverly and Mm -hmm. given the impression of that without it actually happening um the dog didn't have to be quite so floppy so if he was dead or drugged he didn't have to do that so the final word on the ending i mean was was there any other any other option apart from apart from maybe luke and dragline driving further away (laughs) <laughs> uh, hiding better <laughs> um, were, were there any other options do you think other than uh, you know the, the, the death of Luke in the, uh, at the end here the way that they were going with the story that's that's how it had to end these, they, they do these sort of stories specifically like, and there's, there's several like it. it it bears a lot of comparison with uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest which goes in a very similar direction has this, a very similar religious imagery and uh, in the end, its its protagonist has to die to... Well, he doesn't die in that, but he has to be martyred in, in one way to bring about the change. And so, yeah, I, I think if he if he'd got away, it wouldn't have it wouldn't have had the power. It wouldn't have it wouldn't have created that same story to be passed on. And it would have been the story of one man's victory instead of uh, a whole group's victory against oppressors. OK, I can see we're not going to agree here. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> but I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, me too. We always find it, you know, quite kind of pointless for three of us to turn up and go, "Hey, watch this," because you know you've already done that. Um, it's very rare, very rare that I actually say get in touch with the program, isn't it? Mm. Very rare. But if you think, if, I only want to hear from you if you think the same way I do. Here we go. How about that? Yeah. What's, what's our email address? Hello at spoiler.co.uk, right? Hello at spoiler.co.uk. If you think the same way I do. I'm prepared for a barrage of about one email. Here. <laughs> it's not going to come from Gina. Yeah. I can say. No, 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 exactly. I mean, she, I mean, I, you know, you say she, she listens to the show, she's probably not going to anymore because she thinks I'm a right one. <laughs> and, you know, fair enough, fair enough. But if you think the same way I do, please do email hello at spoiler.co.uk. It's unlikely we're going to read that email out in a future episode because it'll be about something else, won't it? Although we might do. I might make an exception if you do. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I just want to know. I just want to know. Is, is there anybody else out there? 
I might be an individual, I might be a niche on this one, and I'm very happy to be there. <laughs> Don't let Paul be a niche. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're, you're a non-conformist. That's ah. what you are. Oh. oh. How does uh, that sit with you? And without realising it, <laughs> and without realising it, Andy, you've summed up the whole programme. Congratulations. <laughs> the point of call hand, Luke. Uh, not that I was fishing for that, but I like it. <laughs> we'll stick with it. It's the perfect ending we've been looking for, apart from, of course, our ratings. Yeah, we're going back to ratings. Now, please remember that often... When I type this out, I have my 10-year-old head on. When do I not have my 10-year-old head on? You may well inquire. So is this film Cool Hand Luke or Cool Hand Puke? <laughs> it's Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, it's Cool Hand Luke for me. Puke. <laughs> I'm sorry you had to hear parts of that. So... Um, Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you in advance if you're going to email us. Hello at spoiler.co.uk. You see, I, I'm getting more and more into that. The more I say it, the more, the more I say that, I sound like a radio presenter or an actual, you know, <laughs> like, like, a, you know a presenter of a podcast, which we are. Multi-award nominated <laughs> podcast here. Maybe we should do more. No, no, we shouldn't. No, Genu- genuinely. You know, I just, I, I think the audience should just be sat there to be entertained. But they should feel that they can if they want to. <laughs> <laughs> it's a slippery, Andy, it's a, slippery, it's a slippery slope though, isn't it? I'm very happy to sit here and spout my opinions But do I want to hear anyone else's Which I think is the purpose of Twitter Anyway On that negative awfulness um, uh, We say thank you, thanks for listening And again, if you've joined us for the first time Please recommend us to your friends uh, we'd, we'd really, really appreciate it Thank you to Johnny through the glass for producing A brilliant show as always And we'll leave you with Andy Goulding Coolhan Luke was passionate in everything he did, a fire on which the prison guards could never keep a lid. With each impassioned bid to flee in which he played a part, he further undermined the proverb, Coolhand, lukewarm heart. But had he not been shot dead out of sheer desperation, he might have died a worse death born of chronic constipation, for all those boiled eggs he ate were still not quite digesting. His stomach couldn't force the buggers through his large intestine. His bowels received the red alert a little bit too late. Internally, that's called a failure to communicate. You've been listening to Spoiler, hosted by me, Paul Tyler, with Andy Goulding and Rachel Burnett. Our theme music was composed by Ron Butcher. I don't care if it rains or freezes, long as I got my plastic cheese I'm sitting on. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends about us. Share the links to our show or write us a nice review on iTunes. If you'd like to contact us, and this, for this episode in particular, do, do email me. Hello at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. The rest of the time, don't bother. For this one, yes, do it. Address it to me. Or you could find us on Twitter or Facebook. Or go to our website, spoilerpodcast.co.uk. Next time on Spoiler, we're watching the 2001 French romantic comedy Amélie. Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hall and is a Joe Schmo production. The show was recorded at the studios of Siren Radio in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. Well, you know how it is, small town. Not much to do in the evening. I'm in the backseat singing Jesus up there grinning Sitting on the dashboard of my car Green, white, pink or yellow I don't care cause he's my fella Sitting on the dashboard
flashboard of my car.